Mrs. Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 13 One often heard from Leszczycki that all arts were related, that the knowledge of one gave an understanding of the others. To him, however, the most interesting part lay in the study of their differences. He saw a great similarity between acting and piano playing, and so it concerned him greatly to find the differences between them. He compared the movements of an actor on the stage to tempos and rhythms, expressions of faces to interpretations. Tones and shading in music should be studied as an actor studied his words, with the same endeavor to suit the acoustics. An actor who could not be intense in his interpretations was a poor actor, and so was a pianist a poor one who could not be dramatic. In form and dimensions he often likened compositions to pictures, and traced the lines in a picture to illustrate phrasing, but he thought the whole art of piano playing most akin to the art of acting. A frequent guest at his house, in my earliest recollection, was the great actor Levinsky. On my introduction to this aged man, he greeted me with the words, Well, are you learning to act at the piano? You can learn it here in this house if you can understand your master. Leszczycki passed us at the moment and remarked that the great actor was invaluable to him and Levinsky replied that Leszczycki's playing was the best acting he had ever known. No paint or powder either, he said. Later, in speaking of Levinsky, Leszczycki remarked that he could have been a good actor with his own great variety of emotions and intensity, whether he had scenes and plays to put himself into or not. He could recite you the alphabet in such a way that it would be an emotional story. Mediocrity could not achieve this, Leszczycki said. One time, another great actor at his house did give an exhibition of this kind. He spoke for fifteen minutes in unintelligible words of no special language and of no meaning in relation to each other. He began in a mysterious tone of voice becoming pathetic as he went on, then rising to a great climax of indignation that overawed his listeners. He finished with great tenderness in melodious tones and sank as though exhausted into a chair. Leszczycki wanted him to repeat this, if possible, but he thought he could hardly do it a second time, and so gave us another exhibition of the kind, but with entirely different emotions. We only need some Chopin music now, said Leszczycki, and we will have it. But nothing with titles. What's that name I heard you giving one of the Chopin etudes? he asked. How can you ever do it? 
Butterfly etude, for instance. It's such a pity to do those things, and you may be far away from the composer's idea of the piece. Probably he never meant the butterflies to come into it. It is a wrong, he went on on this occasion, as if you tried to name a picture according to your feeling and tell people what they should feel in looking at it. Why not let them alone and let each one have his own feeling? It's bad music if you need to help it along by words or stories. Artists of all kinds like to confer with Leschetizky. Please try to bring Leschetizky to us sometime, said Alexander Goltz, one of the well-known artists of Vienna. His criticism of the portrait I am painting would be valuable. Leschetizky had not met this artist, but was delighted to go out to his house in Nussdorf. He stepped quickly into the studio and took one glance at the picture. Goltz asked him what he thought of it. The thumb is too long, I think, said Leschetizky. It looks useless. As the picture is of a pianist, that would be a fault. Her thumb is long, said Goltz, astonished. Yes, replied Leschetizky, but a long thumb is better when playing than when looked at in a picture. After a while, Leschetizky and Goltz walked away together and did not return for a long time, too long for the other guests that the charming Madame Goltz had invited. They returned finally, deep in conversation about the differences and similarities of painting and piano playing, and far into the night the conversation lasted, marked by excited disagreements, but always carried on in a most friendly and deferential manner. Leschetizky was only stimulated by disagreements with his friends or with people that he admired and whose temperaments were congenial to him. He used to quote the Austrian proverb, Only men of the same mind can argue. At supper that evening, Leschetizky made one of his most humorous speeches. There were one or two Americans present. He began by a lively description of Christopher Columbus, in some way connecting him with painters and pianists, and making him an artist, and then went on. I have not often had the experience of being introduced to an artist in Vienna by a foreigner, especially by an American. Oceans sometimes separate, but again they bring you together. Columbus could never have known the momentous consequences of his voyage, and he went on in this humorous fashion a long time to the delight of the guests. Pauline Lucca was one of Leschetizky's great friends. They had sometimes found each other in foreign countries where both were on concert tours. She loved to tell stories about Leschetizky that showed him a romantic figure against a background of conventionality and dullness. She was an adept at telling a story herself. She emphasized everything by acting and was a very witty and inspiring person as well as a great singer. Has he never told you she said to me once, of our bad behavior at the house of an English nobleman. It was a terribly formal dinner party, terribly. Not a word had been spoken at the table for a long time. Not a word, my dear. It was too much for us. We tried bad table manners to enliven things, but this did not succeed at all. Oh, not at all. We were becoming shocking. 
I could not bear it any longer. I ran around to your dear master with a glass of wine, and he left his seat at table smiling broadly, and we drank Bruderschaft before them all. We linked our arms and kissed each other on both cheeks, and, oh, these people were so glad, so glad to have something happen. We all enjoyed ourselves from that time on. His grace found himself in a mood to talk politics with Leshetitsky, and after that everything was lively. We didn't have to play or sing either to make ourselves understood. Dullness was probably the only thing that made a wide gulf of isolation around Leshetitsky. He became tired and depressed among people who did not interest him. And as for stupidity, he showed his impatience and disapproval by quickly excusing himself. Alone, he was never bored. He would sometimes leave the room during lessons and go off by himself to be quite alone. In the class it was most serious and embarrassing when the master disappeared. Less trying, perhaps, would have been his sarcasm, but he himself took the easiest way and left. He would sometimes pace the floor outside, or look for a book to read as an antidote to a bad mood that might become troublesome. Reading refreshed him, and was to him a great recreation. He once said, I think I will go and read to rest myself. I feel empty, and as if everything I knew were gone. I need some new thoughts. He found no virtue in suffering of any kind, and very little in patience. Something he thought was radically wrong if one needed patience, and his patience only lasted so long as it took to right a wrong. He once remarked that he thought he could bear any amount of suffering if it were short, and have enough fortitude for any degree of physical pain if it were brief. But he was sure his courage would fail for any protracted troubles. Slowly increasing dangers and anxieties were a terror to him, and I think he suffered greatly in his lifetime from a prediction made in his youth by a fortune-teller that he would die in the year five. Footnote. This prophecy was in part fulfilled when he died ten years later, in 1915. Consequently, he did not like to look forward to the year 905, and said he had felt much relieved when the clock struck twelve on New Year's morning, 1906. A well-ordered and peaceful house was essential to him for a profitable and successful day, the contrary most infuriating. I go into furnished rooms tomorrow with my valet if that matter of housekeeping isn't instantly corrected, he used to threaten. You can all putter and do as you like, but I warn you, I hold myself free to go. He himself observed great order and regularity in his affairs, and he wanted order in the background, he said, so as to be free in the foreground. His servants were devoted to him and never wanted to leave him. He was polite and kind to them. A lack of politeness to those serving one was truly undignified in his opinion. He expressed himself in no uncertain terms on one occasion to some very rich people who always had trouble with their domestics and were never polite to them. 
He had observed this opulent gentleman one day at the post office, where he was in so much of a hurry that he shoved a poor man out of the way. I am afraid that on that occasion Leschetitsky assumed one of the notorious privileges often imputed to artists, for he suddenly found himself in a great hurry and shoved the very rich gentleman out of the way in the same manner as he had pushed aside the servant. One of Leschetitsky's moments of delight was on hearing that this same millionaire mistook for a servant a very charming and brilliant countess whom he had never seen but desired very much to meet. As she was dressed in plain old clothes, he pushed her aside from the counter at the market where she was buying oranges. As Leschetitsky wanted order, so he expected propriety, and his temper rose to the boiling point at a lack of either. One did not like to make mistakes of propriety before his observing eyes, as he was quick to impose correction. A young Polish girl once allowed herself a moment's hesitation on being beckoned by Leschetitsky to come to him to be introduced to a nobleman at his house. He stepped over to her and brought her quickly forward, telling her he hoped he would not be obliged to teach her good manners as well as music for at the piano, at least, she had shown some talent. He was present at a five o'clock reception one time when an American girl, one of his new pupils, entered the room and, after shaking hands with her Viennese hostess in a very hearty fashion, seated herself comfortably on the sofa. As the hostess walked across the room with one of her most distinguished guests, a princess, she thought of presenting to her the young American girl. Firmly seated on the sofa, the girl extended her hand but did not rise. Leschetitsky could not endure this, and walked as inconspicuously as possible over to them, and took the girl by the arm, saying, In Vienna one stands on being introduced to a lady, and certainly to a princess. Let me see you on your feet, and making a curtsy, too. One of his most delightful impromptu speeches was partly the outcome of the apparent neglect of a certain guest at one of these five o'clock receptions where brilliant artists and poets had come together. Off in the corner stood a rather awkward-looking and diffident person whom Leschetitsky had been for some time observing curiously. After listening to the good conversation of other people for a long time, Leschetitsky was seen going over to his hostess and putting a question to her. She nodded enthusiastically and seated herself with ceremony in the middle of the room, asking her guests to be silent for a moment. "'My dear friends,' said Leschetitsky, "'I want to speak a few words about modesty and also to tell a little story.' Modesty is a quality innate in some people. It is so natural to them that it becomes almost a fault. It is not one of my faults. I am more envious than modest, and wish that I might have done some one brave act in my lifetime that I could brag about, for I surely should brag about it. But there are people who seem to be almost ashamed of having distinguished themselves. I think it is nothing to be ashamed of to have saved lives, for instance. Goethe was not right when he said that only blackguards and idiots are modest. 
There are no such characters in this room, for instance, and yet there is one here supremely modest, and we are all deprived by this modesty of the benefit of his great spirit and philosophy of life. Discretion, of course, is a part of modesty, but we take issue with discretion and modesty, and being selfish human beings and artists, we like to be amused, we like to hear the daring deeds, and we like to think we might have done likewise. We are rascals not to be modest. A few years ago, there were terrible storms in the North Sea. One of our number here today sailed across the channel in one of the worst of these storms. Boats were tossed about like chips on the rough seas, engines were disabled, and all along the Dutch coast were the wrecks of small boats. But this was only the beginning of the bad storms. A week later, one of the channel boats was split on a rock in plain sight of people on shore. Half of the boat sank with most of the passengers. The other half was supported on this rock for three days. There were six people left. Brave sailors lost their lives trying to save these people. There was little hope unless the storm abated. Then it was that Prince Henry arrived, having travelled as fast as he could to reach the spot. At the same time came, wonder of wonders, an artist and modest, one of those blackguards and idiots that Goethe speaks about. The sailors found among themselves, however, a powerful helper, and cheered by Prince Henry, they made still another heroic attempt to save the exhausted people. The stranger threw himself into the waves. He had no fear for himself, and performed marvels of heroism until these people were saved. I heard on coming into this room today that this man was here. Are we right or wrong? he inquired, turning slowly toward the silent and awkward guest. His eyes rested on the guest for a moment, then turned back to the audience. This is my little speech about modesty, he concluded. Alesha Titsky's birthday, his pupils and friends liked to make a celebration for him. These were often very large affairs, arranged by committees, and Lesha Titsky seemed to enjoy them, but not wholeheartedly. They were rather too formal to make him altogether happy. There was no music, and in the midst of the long speeches, Leshetitsky was embarrassed and bewildered. The well-known signs of boredom were on his face, and instead of being the life of the party and becoming more and more cheerful as time went on, he made pathetic excuses that he had not slept well the night before, and left at an early hour. If the truth were known, one might have found him at five in the morning walking about the streets or sitting on a bench in one of the beautiful Vienna parks. Leschetitsky was very fond of excursions to the country, and on one occasion, when he had really been feeling ill, he suggested making his birthday celebration himself. Six of us were invited for a two or three days trip down the Danube as far as Pressburg. We had to start early in the morning, and Leschetitsky, who was never late, was the first one to arrive at the boat. He was happy and contented, except for the fear that someone might be late, and looked forward to a long, quiet day. 
His attitude of mind was of peaceful and affectionate meditation on the past and present. He had made the journey there before, with Liszt and Rubinstein. He wondered if we could not find the hotel and stop at the place where they had been together. He wanted also to find certain gypsies that would perhaps be in Pressburg still. The Praetor was the nearest place to go to hear the gypsies play in Vienna, but he reminded us that the wildest gypsies did not come near big places, and if people wanted to hear them play, they had to search for them. He thought one hardly knew how to play an Hungarian rhapsody until one had heard and appreciated the playing of the wildest band of gypsies. The boat glided noiselessly along, and Leszczycki talked about his colleagues, then of the pupils he had had in the years since he had first made this journey, from how many corners of the earth they had come. He called himself a fortunate man. We had been so entertained all day that by the time we landed in Pressburg, about five o'clock, we suddenly discovered for the first time that we were tired. We were led around many corners and down many streets until Leszczycki was sure we had found the small hotel where he and his friends had stopped. Now Leszczycki was just beginning to live and enjoy himself. He asked us reproachfully if we really must take a rest. Frau Bray thought we really ought to do so, but we all appeared again after a short time to start what was in reality another day with Leszczycki. As we sat at the dinner table, Leszczycki called for the proprietor and asked him if he happened to have the old registry books. Search was made for them in the cellar, where they were finally found. Leszczycki turned page after page in great excitement until he discovered the three signatures of Liszt, Rubinstein, and his own. After dinner, we sat in one of the parks of Pressburg, a rather dense park with enormous trees. One tiny incident came very near marring the perfect happiness of our excursion, but, as usual, Leszczycki knew how to make good situations out of bad ones, and harmony was restored through his prompt action. He seemed suddenly nervous and irritable, and remarked to me that he had overheard a conversation that annoyed him. He described it as absurd and conceited on one side, and altogether too resigned and passive on the other. "'I can't wait to relieve my mind,' he said. "'So let's find the gypsies and get settled in the room where we can be together and where we can talk.' Leszczycki led us again down many streets to the outskirts of Pressburg, where we found a special type of gypsies— it might have been that they were the same ones whom he knew years before and who remembered him. At any rate, they must have recognized in Leszczycki a man after their own hearts, for, as he walked down the path toward them, they fairly swarmed about him, danced around him, and began to play close to his ear. "'Don't play too well,' he said to one of them. "'We shall be jealous.' We have much to learn from you, even if we know a little bit ourselves. They asked him what he wanted to hear. I want to hear you, he replied. Don't worry about what you play. They became very animated. They waved to us, and the whole band bowed from time to time. 
the leader walked round and round our table as he played then back nearer his band and they all leaned toward us as they made great crashes of crescendos or passionate diminuendos but leschetizky was still uneasy after a while came a pause in the music when people could talk and move about the gypsies have a dynamic quality and rhythm that very few people have Leschetizky began. But the Germans have it also, said one of our number. The Germans least of all, said Leschetizky. They have their own qualities, sentiment, sweetness, and poetry. But the real fire, and certainly the abandon of these gypsies, you seldom find among the Germans. Oh, professor, protested the one addressed, you forget Dalbert. Is he a German? You forget, said Leschetizky, the Viennese have what I mean. The Poles, the Russians, and the English, and Americans are not lacking in this quality. No, indeed. He grew more severe and masterful with every word. The Germans would like to think they possess the qualities I am speaking about. They often pretend to have them, but their eloquence more often degenerates into declamation, and their abandon into affectation. It is almost racial. These qualities women often have and play with great fire. Carreño, for instance, Fanny Bloomfield Seisler, an Austrian-born, Catherine Goodson, an English girl. These qualities often amount to grandeur, he said with emphasis. At that, at least two of our party flushed with excitement and one with embarrassment. Take every good quality where you find it, and be glad, and give it all the respect it deserves. If such things have been given you, you can always allow yourself to say so, and you can be as proud of them as you like. If you don't recognize them where they do exist, it is because you are envious. But don't let us theorize any more in this place, said Leschetizky. We came down here to forget our troubles, and to enjoy each other, to forget ourselves, didn't we? he asked, very much relieved and smiling. Look at those gypsies. They have forgotten everything but the pleasure of playing. They are magnificent. Lesertitsky gave them more money, and they played on. He was happy, and none of us would have offended him by appearing sleepy or tired, though we stayed until broad daylight. We made another excursion one time to the beautiful Zemmering, which is a favorite resort of the Viennese, on the edge of the mountains one crosses on the road to Italy. Mark Twain and his family were in Vienna at that time, and during the two years that they were there, he and Leschetizky often came together. They became great friends, and seemed to understand each other perfectly, in spite of the fact that the English of the one was as limited as the German of the other. Leschetizky was full of admiration for Mark Twain, as were all the Viennese. As he walked through the streets of Vienna, people made way for him, and his white head and distinguished bearing made him a conspicuous figure. Once, as Clara Clemens, his daughter, was going through the narrow Kärntnerstrasse with a friend, she saw her father far ahead and tried to overtake him. Coming up to him, 
she reached out with her parasol to stop him, when a policeman instantly threw himself between them to protect the distinguished visitor. Mr. Clemens laughed heartily on turning around and seeing the two abashed girls. While in Vienna he gave one evening of storytelling in the Bösendorfer's all, and this was a matter of pleasant recollection for years afterward among the Viennese. A party consisting of Mr. and Mrs. Clemens, their daughters, Clara and Jean, Leschetitsky, Madame Leschetitska, Jane Olmsted, two American doctors, my sister and me, went together to the Zemmering for several days. The mountainsides there are covered with thick pine woods, and in winter there are sports rivaling those of Switzerland. Further on is Mürzuschlag, a mountain place where the peasants have inherited curious traditions of winter sports. Their tobogganing is famous. The toboggans are large and look like sleighs. There is a wide seat in front where the driver sits and with his legs propels the sleigh. You arrive at nine, are driven, or nearly dragged, for four hours to the top of the highest mountain. There a luncheon is prepared for you, and during the interval of lunching, the horses are driven home down the mountain, so that there is no danger of their being in the way when the toboggans follow. We had six of these sleighs, and a stalwart man sitting on the wide seat in front. The sleighs came down the mountain, regular distances apart, steered by the strong men in front with a sureness that was almost incredible. We covered in ten minutes the distance which it had taken four hours to climb. The occupants of one belated sleigh had been rather terrified at the speed and persuaded their reluctant driver to stop for a few minutes. In the winter there was the best skiing in the Zemmering, and in the spring and autumn wonderful walks through the pine woods and over the mountains on splendid roads. On one of these roads I found a gemsbart, which Leschetitsky stuck in his hat and wore all the time we were at the Zemmering. Our evening suppers at the Zemmering were real events when Mark Twain and Leschetitsky vied with each other as after-dinner speakers. Mr. Clemens used jokingly to complain that Leschetitsky made the best speeches he had ever heard. Once or twice after dinner we resorted to old-fashioned games in which Leschetitsky joined with amused curiosity. On reaching Vienna again after this excursion, some of us sat down with him in the station restaurant for a little supper. We were tired from the mountain air and the late festivities, and heads were drooping. Someone remarked that the only person who did not seem tired was Leschetitsky. When I was your age, he said, I was not only studying music, but preparing myself for the university as well, and had to satisfy myself with two or three hours sleep. There could be no sagging like that during waking hours, or in the presence of people, I learned then how to keep myself lively. 